0: Bit needed a snack throughout. There you go. Great to see you guys. Uh, my name's Dan. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as we jump into this passage from 1 Samuel chapter 16, I want you to imagine a theatre stage. And imagine that as the curtain rises, we see there in the darkness a dim light barely illuminating an old man. There he is with his beard hanging down to the ground, bent over, weeping. This is Samuel, one of the greatest men of his time, one of the greatest men in Israel, a prophet, a priest, a former judge. He's a celebrity in Israel. But why is he now weeping? Open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Samuel is grieving Over Saul. He grieves for the king of Israel because remember how far Saul has fallen. And as we imagine the stage there, Samuel's weeping in the midst of it. Perhaps now the lights illuminate the rest of the stage, and we can see in the background a huge statue. It's Saul, a monument he's built to himself. A statue of him strikingly tall, barrel-chested, face set with smug confidence, a monument to his glory. In fact, as we've seen in the last few weeks, if you've been with us, he's become a self-exalting bragger, stealing glory from those who fight his battles for him, like Jonathan. He's become a self-deceived fool, claiming to obey God. When, like we saw last week, he's doing exactly the opposite. He's only partially obeying God, but thinking that he fully is. He's become a self-defensive liar, always passing the buck, blaming others for his sin. And he's become a self-determined judge, rejecting God's way because I know better. How far the king of Israel has fallen. And now... God has rejected him as king. This is why Samuel weeps. It's all over. This is spiritual disaster for Israel. But suddenly into this picture of disaster, we hear a booming voice. God speaks, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. He says to Samuel, get up. Stop your crying. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to raise up a new king for Israel, one that I choose who will be godly and he will lead my people righteously. And as the story picks up pace, here's what we're going to see. God raises up and God brings down. Now, put that statement in contrast with what a lot of people in the world believe today. How is it that that someone ends up raised up? How is it that someone ends up in power? Well, either generally they're very skilled or they're very corrupt. Right, those are the two options. (laughs) Or maybe they're very well connected, or they're very wealthy, they've got money to splash around. This is how someone ends up in power. And and how does someone fall from power? Well, usually because they get caught. Right, they get caught doing something that they shouldn't. (coughs) Or they get voted out. Or they run out of money, they make a bad business decision. And so people end up rising or falling because of public opinion. Media portrayals, how they handle wealth, whether they're well-networked or not. But today, we'll see that this isn't how things work among God's people. God raises up and God brings down. It's his prerogative, not just public opinion. It's according to his standards and his will. God raises up and God brings down. And behind this statement, we're going to see lies two things. Firstly, incredible hope. But secondly, some unsettling questions. And all will be revealed as we dig into this story together in 1 Samuel 16. But first, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you now knowing that our only hope to understand your word is if your spirit opens our ears and opens our eyes to see the things that you have to say. And so, Lord, we, we turn to you and we ask humbly, uh, please uh, grant us a willing spirit to hear your word, to understand it rightly, to believe it and obey it. Lord, we ask this, that we might grow in love for you and each other. In Jesus' name, amen. So now we see Samuel riding into Bethlehem. Famous name today, right? We all know Bethlehem, that's where Jesus was was born. But not a famous name back then. Bethlehem was just sort of a backwater town, right? It's like the the Kurumbong of the the ancient Near East. Uh, And so Samuel rides into this Bethlehem uh, and he meets the city elders at the gate. They're all fearful because (laughs) here's this celebrity that's turned up, prophet, priest, former judge, like the triple threat. He's turned up and they're going, why is he here? Is he here because we've done something wrong? And so he assures them, no, I'm here peaceably. I'm here to make a sacrifice with you. Little do we know, little do they know, of course, that there's more to this. It's not just a sacrifice, it's not just a feast. The king lives in this town, God's choice for the next king. And so Samuel gathers together the elders and also one other totally random family, the family of Jesse. Again, we know there's something more going on here, and it would seem as well that Jesse catches on to something. Take a look there in verse 6. You could imagine that Jesse begins parading his sons in front of Samuel. Here's Eliab, my eldest, right? What an opportunity. Israel's foremost celebrity is here. Who knows what networking chance this could bring us? And so, here's my eldest boy, says Jesse with a proud smile. His name is Eliab. And verse 6, Samuel looks Eliab up and down and there's a lot to look at. He's tall, he's strong, he's broad-shouldered. You can imagine him sort of in the, the front line in the state of origin or something like that. He's a big guy, chiseled jaw, quick with the sword. And Jesse, you can imagine, elbows Samuel and says, Did you know his name, Eliab? We chose it specifically. It means, God is my father. Wow. Like, it's almost written in the stars, isn't it? This guy sounds great. His middle name must mean future king of Israel. Now, not really, of course. But Samuel's beginning to think so. Look at what he says in verse 6. He looks on Eliab and he thinks surely the Lord's anointed is before him, right? Like surely God is weighing up this Eliab bloke and he's going, wow, look at how tall, how strong, how quick with the sword, how godly even perhaps because his name means God is my father. But then look at verse 7. Although Jesse thinks the world of him and Samuel's easily impressed by him, God isn't. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. This isn't the one. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, this should be nothing new for Samuel, right? Flick back with me to, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 10. You might remember, Back when Saul was first chosen and anointed as king, remember he came out of the baggage he was hiding and then he stood up in front of, of everyone in Israel and you can see there in verse 24, we read this, Samuel sort of presents him to everyone, he's a head taller and he says, there is no one like him among the people. Now maybe there's a little bit of irony to that because look, he's just come out of the luggage, but. Also, there's a sense that, gee, look how tall and striking and and impressive this guy is. There's there's no one like him. So Samuel, he should have learned his lesson from this because look where things went with Saul. Pick the tallest guy, the strongest guy. doesn't go well. How easily are humans often impressed and deceived by what our eyes see? Even Samuel has to learn that lesson again. Now, this week, I discovered a new app. Uh, it's an app you may have heard of. Uh, it's called Be Real. Hand up if you've heard of this before. Yeah, okay. Yep. So um, I thought I was on the cutting edge, right? I discovered this app on Monday, and I sent a little message around to our church social group. We've got a little Facebook chat where a bunch of us are on, and I'm like, guys, this is the next big thing. You probably haven't heard of it. And like, who was it, Ethan? Ethan? And I'm going to dob you guys in. Ethan, I think it was Laura maybe as well, just gently reminded me that I'm 34. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, I'm just past it. I'm, I'm on the tail end of this trend. Everyone's known about this thing for weeks. But what it, what it is, is um, it's like Instagram or other social media apps where you take selfies and you, you sort of put them out into the world. Uh, the stick with this one, you can see on the right-hand side there, is... It sends you a notification once a day. It sends everyone in the world the same notification, same time, where you've got two minutes to take your photo. Two minutes. So you can't really do a setup, like get the lighting just right, get yourself in the, same, the right location, get your hair looking just right. No, it's, you could be getting out of bed, and you've got bed hair. Oh, this is my two minutes. You know, well, I take the photo now and reveal this version of myself <laughs> to the world. Uh, you could be in the middle of a mouthful of food, you could be bored at work, you know, all these different things. It's, it's trying to take the glitz and glamour out of the way people present themselves on social media. Pretty cool idea. Um, the Be Real app, however, has come under some criticism. There's one researcher at Curtin University who's put it this way, he's a researcher in technology and culture. Um, I love the name of the app, Be Real, but social media is about performing. And there's nothing about Be Real that actually feels real or authentic. Now, um, it's a fun app. <laughs> I, I gave it a little go earlier in the week. But, you know, when I take that photo in two minutes a day, I'm still only showing a, a version of myself to the world, right? It's, I'm, I'm choosing to say, yeah, this is the day when I will show the bed hair version of myself to the world. Because I feel okay to show the bed hair version of myself to the world. It's just a slice of who I am. It's still an appearance, It's still external. It's not who I really am. It is fun, but it's not really me. And perhaps actually it's telling that Instagram has now copied this exact same feature. They do exactly the same thing. So make of that what you will. Why are these things so popular, though? Whether it's Instagram or Facebook or or Be Real or whatever? Well, partly it's because, of course, we are wrapped up with appearances. It's just a fundamental fact of our human engagement in the world, right? Mike and I were talking about this as we we came in this morning, actually. Like, how quickly do we form an impression on someone that we first meet? It's like 10 seconds, right? It can be as little as you shake their hand and notice it's a little bit cold and clammy and you go, ooh, are they like a healthy person or not? Right, it just happens straight away. Have you ever met someone who goes, I am such a good judge of character. I can size someone up within minutes of meeting them judging character it is judging what someone looks like and and whether their posture is good or not whether their hair looks good that day or not right but we do this all the time we are so easily impressed with on the one hand but also deceived by appearances one guy puts it this way like samuel we are too impressed by the things that can be seen with the physical eyes Consequently, we live in a world where physical beauty outranks spiritual depth, where success in business and in church tends to be defined in materialistic terms, and where charisma is prized above character. I wonder if you agree with that. As a side note, the, the point there about church I think is a good one. Uh, we can be so quick to judge whether a church is successful based on these sorts of things, right? Uh, whether the building is impressive and, and the music is excellent and has a full dynamic sound, and is the sermon stirring? Does it sound like the ones I listen to online? Uh, is the congregation young and trendy and numerous? You know, these are things that make a church seem successful. But remember, man looks at appearances, God looks at the heart. But those are things that really make a church successful in God's eyes. Now, even Samuel requires correction here. In verse 7, he reminds him, I'm the one who see the things that humans don't. I see people as they really are. And so when Jesse brings out his second eldest son, Abinadab, Samuel says into verse 8, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then when he brings out his third eldest son, Shammah, verse 9, again, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then he brings out number four, number five, number six, number seven, big family. The passage stops naming the sons at this point because they don't matter. (laughs) All of them get paraded before Samuel. But verse 10, the Lord has not chosen these either. He looks at the heart. And these sons are found wanting. And so instead, Samuel turns his attention to another possibility. Verse 11, are all your sons here? The Lord has said that the next king is going to come from the family of Jesse. Seven sons have been rejected. There must be another one, thinks Samuel. He has faith in the Lord. He trusts his word. Turns out there is one left. And Jesse says, Ah, yeah, well, (laughs) there remains yet the youngest. But look, he's out keeping the sheep. You can hear the tone there, right? Uh, This youngest son... Didn't even get invited to the meeting with Israel's biggest celebrity. He's left out in the fields doing the work while they're feasting and about to make a sacrifice. No one bothered to go tell him. And so you hear what Jesse's saying, right? Well, not, not that one. He just does the grunt work around here. He doesn't matter. But Samuel cuts to the chase. No, send and go and get him. And you can imagine him folding his arms and going... We're not even going to eat until he comes. Because again, the Lord has said that the new king is going to come from this family. He's following the Lord's directions. You can imagine Jesse's reply, but he's the youngest. In Hebrew, there's a bit of wordplay here. He's the youngest. He's the smallest. Both of those there in the, in the word. He's just the little one. He's the runt. And then the other sons, why him? He's the baby brother, right? He's a nobody, and then when this younger son does come in verse 12, well, we see that, yes, he's ruddy, so he's, he's probably like a bit red-cheeked, like he's got a bit more of a beautiful pale complexion to him, which was prized in the ancient Near East. He's, he's probably handsome. He has nice eyes, it says there. Uh, but his whole situation really isn't that impressive, is it? He's the eighth in line for the family inheritance. <laughs> he's treated as a nobody. Again, God isn't a slave to our conventions. God raises up, but not based on our criteria. And so when this youngest son arrives, we hear the Lord say, look at this, at the end of verse 12, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Literally, this is the one. He's the one. Not the strong, the impressive, the one of high standing, the baby brother, who no one invited. And God's often in the habit of doing this. I don't know if you've noticed this across the scriptures, and even maybe in your Christian experience. Come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me. God is in the habit of taking people that we wouldn't expect and raising them up. So the Corinthian church, just like Jesse and his sons, they were obsessed with appearances. If you go back to the start of 1 Corinthians and you read a few verses in, you get a sense of it. Uh, who were the people worth following? Who were the people worth listening to? Well, those who spoke well, they were eloquent. Uh, Those who were like the upper crust of society. Uh, Those with the special spiritual gifts, the ones that seemed very impressive. We hear that in sort of chapter 12 or 13, 14. Uh, The impressive, the skilled, the habit all together, they're the ones worth following and listening to. But then we get this in chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. Consider your calling, brothers, He's saying to the Corinthian church, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. And this principle is as true today as it was in Paul's time and in Samuel's time, right? What sort of person does God raise up? Kids, there's your big question. Listen into this. What sort of person does God raise up? God doesn't look for the sort of person who has it all together, right? Who looks very impressive by worldly standards who's tall and strong, who looks very religious or looks very impressive. Actually, God looks for the person who knows they don't have it all together. He looks for the person who knows that in the world's eyes, they're a fool to believe in Jesus. He looks for the person who knows that in God's eyes, they're a sinner. They've rejected him. They have no hope. He looks for the person who knows that they need Jesus to be their saviour and that there is no other way for them. That's who God looks for. Is that you? And even if you've been a Christian for many years, even coming to church for decades, is that still you? Because we can be around the church thing for so long that we start to think we're better than that now. We're not the lowly The despised, the foolish in the eyes of the world, the sinner. Beware, because that's not the sort of person that God looks to raise up. God raises up to salvation those who know that they are foolish, weak, low, despised by the world. He raises up the one who knows that they need Jesus. And if that is you, take courage. You belong to God. In Christ, he has forgiven you. He has raised you up so high beyond your station. He has made you a son and daughter. Now, I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says that in my insignificant sheep-keeping obscurity, I am chosen. Isn't that beautiful? In my insignificant sheep-keeping obscurity, I am chosen. You're not actually a fool you're not actually weak nor stuck down low if you're in christ then god has raised you up to the highest honor in the universe you're a son or daughter of the most high god praise god now in verse 13 we see this youngest son experience something of that honor take a look here now first we learn his name finally it's not mentioned until here and spoiler warning in case you didn't know who this was it's David, King David, famous King David. Uh, But now we see God himself actually come to dwell in David. What an honor. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed, literally seized David. He rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, um, we did the book of Judges last year. And across the book of Judges, you see the Spirit sometimes anoint people to do a certain task or to face a certain battle or to lead for a period of time, and the Spirit kind of rushes on and then departs, right? But this is different. Here we see something more permanent, actually, because it says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So there's a, an anointing here and a filling of the Spirit that's actually very similar to what we as Christians experience. Uh, when we come to believe in Christ, the Spirit also rushes upon us and fills us with with power to obey and to serve and to love and do the things that the Lord has commanded us to do. That's pretty similar, I think, to what we see in David. He's he's anointed in a special way. It's God really saying, he's got my seal of approval. This is mine. He's chosen by me. And again, not because he's handsome, not because he's (laughs) ruddy-faced, just because God chose him. He's taken low-down David and raised him up. Now, we shouldn't expect, though, that because he has the Holy Spirit, that that means life will be easy for David. You know, sometimes we assume that. The Spirit-filled life, ah, that must be where everything goes well for someone. No, to be filled with the Spirit doesn't guarantee a life of ease. In fact, as we'll see from next week onwards, David is going to fight a giant, and he's going to dodge Saul's spear several times, He's going to be chased out into the wilderness where he'll live in exile among neoduels. do wells Uh, He will come close to starvation and he will be on the run for over a decade, right? There's the spirit-empowered life for you, right? Your best life now. (laughs) Uh, Don't listen to those charlatans on the Christian channel or Christian TV. I sometimes see them. That, that say to you, oh, God wants you to live your best life now and he fills you with the Spirit so you can have success and you can flourish and you can have everything. No, for goodness sake. When the Spirit comes, the trouble begins, <laughs> right? Um, Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Put that on a coffee mug. Uh, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted 2 Timothy 3, 12. When the Spirit comes, the trouble begins. Remember for Jesus, when he was was baptized, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove and he came out of the water. What happened next? Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and come close to salvation. Right? This is what the Spirit does. He doesn't bring us into a life of ease. He empowers us to do costly and difficult things for the Lord. And he empowers us to stand up against temptation and testing like that as well. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves that they might grow to love him more. But the upshot is this. If we remember how the Spirit worked in David, leading him into trouble, and his descendant, Jesus, leading him into the wilderness, then we begin to understand that suffering is a mark of our sonship it doesn't necessarily mean that God is displeased with us or we're under judgment or even necessarily under discipline. Suffering doesn't mean we're on the wrong track. Often, it just means God's at work, leading and growing us through difficulty and hardships. The wilderness is not a sign of the Spirit's absence, but the scene of His presence. The wilderness is not a sign of of the Spirit's absence. It's the scene of his presence. Which brings us then to a contrast at the heart of this story. While the Spirit is present in David, God now removes the Spirit from Saul. Verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Up is down, down is up. There's a big reversal here. God raises up David from a lowly place, anointing him with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to tear down Saul from his self-exalted place, removing the Holy Spirit from him and instead giving him a harmful spirit. But here comes the uncomfortable question. In fact, two uncomfortable questions. The first is, what's the go (laughs) with this harmful spirit? God sending a harmful spirit on someone, how does that work? It is a spirit from the Lord, it says there. And, I mean, that's got to be at least a little bit troubling. It becomes even more troubling if you're using an NIV in front of you or a King James Version, what's it say? Not a harmful spirit, but a... Evil, evil. thank you, Ross. Yeah, an evil spirit. Hold on a second. Is God in the business of doing evil? Does God send evil spirits... To do his work. Well, this week I did a bunch of reading on this. Uh, And there's a there's a bunch of thinking and writing on how the Hebrew grammar works here and adjectival phrases and genitives and blah blah blah. And I would love to vomit all that over you because I'm passionate about all that stuff, but I'll I'll cut to the chase and just give you the headline, okay? First, and this should be obvious: God does not do evil. He is not evil. In fact, good and evil are defined by who God is. Everything God does is, by definition, good. The definition of good is God, right? Anything that is uh, separate from God, that is against God, that is what evil is. So, God does not do evil. But as for this spirit, well, uh, this phrase isn't a moral description of the spirit you know sometimes we might say oh he's an evil person oh he's just evil now that's a that's a moral description of that person right oh don't go near him he's evil he'll mess you up here in the hebrew the, the word evil actually works differently it's not a moral description it's a description of the effects of this spirit So it is not an evil spirit, it is a spirit for evil, or a spirit that brings about evil, or a spirit that allows evil to come about. It's a spirit for evil, a spirit for harm. Now that's still challenging, isn't it? But we know that it's not God sending a demon or something like that. Now he could, remember, God is in control of the whole spiritual world. It's not a battle between God and Satan and who's going to win, no. God's totally sovereign. He can, as we see in Job, he can even make Satan do his bidding, right? Uh, but I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, Instead, what I think is that this is a spirit the Lord sends for evil, for harm on Saul, and that's exactly what we actually see as as the passage goes on. His experience is that he is harmed. He experiences the evil effects of his own disobedience, right? So from this point on, he starts showing signs of, I guess what we would call today, severe mental illness. Uh, There's Paranoia, deep depression, maybe schizophrenia, as we see as time goes on. Uh, and look, just as a side note, if you experience any of these things yourself, um, that's not judgment from the Lord. Uh, that's not an evil spirit in you. I, I cannot state that emphatically enough. Uh, the only reason that we can say that that is the case here is because the scriptures specifically pointed out. But we don't have that over our lives, and so you know, no, that's that's not you're not Saul, okay if you're experiencing depression or paranoia or schizophrenia. Uh, but all of these things, nonetheless, are evil things in the world, right? Before the fall, was there paranoia? Was there depression? Was there schizophrenia? No, the, the world was good. It was very good. Those things weren't around. So we, we could rightly describe them as evil effects in the world, right? They're not what God originally intended for the world. And one day there'll be no more in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, And so we'd say that these are evil things, harmful things. And therefore, the the conclusion, I think, is that God is giving Saul over to the evil effects of severe mental illness. Uh, And perhaps it's described as as a spirit entering him because that's what the Lord is doing to bring that about. Uh, Perhaps it's just the the biblical writers attempt at at saying that they don't have a category called schizophrenia or paranoia, so they describe it as as a spirit... Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's the spirit is like who you are. It's your, it's your demeanor. It's your, your sort of constitution, your composition as a person. Um, and so it could be either of those. But here's the main thing. God doesn't do evil, but he does allow Saul to come under the effects of evil. It's still a real challenge. But we see it as the just outcome of Saul's disobedience. These are the evil consequences of what he's done. That's our first question. Does that sit okay? Second question. And talk to me afterwards if you want to hash that out a bit more or you want the grammar lesson or whatever. But the the second question is, can can, can a Christian lose the presence of the Holy Spirit? Right? I wonder if that was on your mind as you listened to this reading and, whoa, hold on, Saul has the Spirit depart from him. And then even later on, David prays in Psalm 51. Remember, he's reflecting on his sin in uh, adultery and murder. And he says these words in verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence, Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So can a a Christian lose the presence of the Holy Spirit? Can we end up like Saul? Can we become what David feared? Well, here's the quick answer. No. (laughs) No. emphatically, no. If you are a genuine Christian, then the Holy Spirit will never leave you or depart from you. Check out these words in Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is, believed in Jesus, when you believed in him and he became your saviour, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, there are like links in a chain there that you might have heard as I was reading that out. Hear the gospel. So to those of you who've heard the word of truth, right, that's the first link. You've heard the gospel that Jesus came to save us from our sins, died, rose again to be our substitute, um, to take our sin upon himself. And by faith in him, we can be forgiven and made right with God. You've heard the word of truth. And then you believe it, there's the next link in the chain. Uh, and then, having believed it, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that word seal, picture like an envelope that has one of those old school like uh, impressions in wax so that it's stuck and, and no one's going to open it. It's, it's sealed shut. So, the language here definitely shows that if you have heard the word of truth and you believe the gospel, you're a genuine Christian then the, the Spirit has sealed you for the day when you'll receive your inheritance from the Lord. So not just for today, not just for tomorrow, but every single day until you wake up one day in the new creation with God and his people forever, right? Why is it that you will wake up a Christian tomorrow? Because the Spirit has sealed you. Why is it that if you are a genuine Christian, you will still wake up as a Christian in 40 years if you are still here on earth? Because the Spirit has has sealed you so if you are a genuine christian you cannot lose the holy spirit however it asks it begs the question are you a genuine christian there was a guy that i used to know back in uh, uni who i remember seeing him at the christian group meetings and uh, he was a very passionate christian you would say uh, he knew his bible well he was serving in youth ministry and in kids ministry. Loved his local church. Uh, he, uh, when you watched him worship, you could tell that he was like really just feeling the lyrics. He had hands up and just you know, really praising the Lord. It would seem. I caught up with him a few years after uni, and he wanted nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with Christianity. Now, how would we describe what happened there? If the Spirit seals us for the day of redemption then we have to conclude, actually, that he never really had the Holy Spirit to begin with, right? If he goes to his dying day continuing to reject the Lord, reject Jesus and and not repent of his sin, then we have to conclude, actually, that that all of his so-called passion for the Lord was just a self-deception. And that can happen. People can have strong feelings about all sorts of things, right? People can be stirred by music, They can have an emotional connection with lyrics that they're singing and really feel it strongly. But then shown by their rejection of the faith and their rejection of ongoing repentance, well, it just shows that those truths were never really, truly deep down a part of them. They didn't lose the Spirit. God didn't abandon them. Never had the Spirit to begin with. Now, unless, of course, that man, and I pray and hope he does, (laughs) turns back to the Lord... And then we find actually that he does have a sincere conversion and continues to his dying day trusting Jesus. Well, then we see, ah, the Spirit did save him, probably at that second occasion, not that first one. Um, You see what I'm saying there? We, We never lose the Spirit, but we do have to ask the question, am I a genuine Christian? Do I genuinely trust that Christ is my substitute? do i genuinely believe that he was crucified for my sin and am i turning away from sin am i bringing more and more of my life under god's reign because remember friends god doesn't just look at the outside at how much of the bible we know at whether our hands are up or not at whether we're serving a bunch or not he looks at the heart And the heart will then flow into genuine worship and wanting to know the Lord and and wanting to serve. But he looks at the heart and it would be horrendous for you to only discover that when it's too late. So ask the question. If you are a genuine Christian, then praise the Lord, his spirit seals you and you cannot lose the Holy Spirit. Back to the story which we're about to finish. Because now we know what this harmful spirit is. We can see what happens to Saul. And really what he's done now is he's kicked God out of the house, hasn't he? He's totally rejected God, but he's also rejected Samuel. And so he's kind of gotten rid of God's furniture as well. There's no comfort for him anymore. What's he left with? Torment. This is God's judgment on him. Paranoia, flashes of anger, deep regret. And so one of his servants there suggests that, hey, I've got a bit of a Band-Aid solution for this. Go and get someone who's good at playing the guitar, right? Who can play some nice music, the kind of thing you look up on Spotify to like do some mindfulness activities too or something like that and it helps you calm down. Go get someone who can do that. And uh, every time this evil spirit comes upon you and, and you feel kind of angry, oh, just get him to play guitar and you'll chill out a bit. right? It's a very temporary band-aid sort of solution, isn't it? Uh, treating the, the symptoms and not the real problem. And, and really for Saul, I mean, this is all he can do. He's rejected the Lord. What else can he do? As the, the great... Early church theologian Augustine said, our heart is restless until it rests in thee. Saul can't rest in God because he's rejected him and so his heart is restless. It's going to stay restless unless he repents. He can only appeal to temporary band-aid solutions. But God uses this. Verse 18, take a look at this. He brings down Saul, but in the process raises up David. What an irony here. Uh, in verse 18, one of Saul's servants says, hey, I've actually seen one of Jesse's sons. He's good with the harp. And then in verse 18, uh, quite a resume for David. He's not just a good harp player, liar player. He's actually skillful in playing, but also a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. And this last one, so important, the Lord is with him. David's actually recognized as a godly man at this point. The Lord is with him. And the irony, of course, is that Saul invites David to come and play the lyre for him, help him calm down, get the panadol he's looking for. But actually, he's inviting the very future king of Israel, that's going to be his replacement, into his throne room. (laughs) Isn't the sovereignty of God amazing? (laughs) Just the way that he sometimes does these things. Uh, You you couldn't make up a better story. (laughs) He raises up the lowly and he brings down the self-exalted. And this is the turning point, I think, of 1 Samuel. Everything we've been seeing so far is just setting up for this moment where Saul comes down and David's about to go up. This is the Lord's sovereign choice. But it's also a turning point in salvation history because one day from the royal line of David will, of course, come the Messiah, Jesus. You read the early genealogies in Matthew and you see that Yes, he came from David's line. He's the descendant. And here's the thing. Jesus looks a lot like David in the way that he lives. Uh, he didn't initially seem all that impressive to people. Uh, in Isaiah 52 and 53, we, we read that there's nothing in his appearance to attract people. He's not like the six-foot-four white guy that we see on all the like Mormon literature and things like that, right? He's unattractive, most likely. And people wrote him off all the time. Mark 6, verse 3, they said, He's just like one of us. Or in John 7, 41, they say, Well, he was born in a dodgy town out in backwater Galilee. The Messiah can't come from there. It's obviously not him. His brothers mocked him. His hometown rejected him. Many of his disciples ended up abandoning him. And in the end, people said, Matthew 27, 42, He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. There was nothing in Jesus' appearance that made him look all that impressive by worldly standards. Millions of people today think similar things about Jesus, and they totally miss it. He may have been a pretty good teacher, they say, but in the end, oh, he's nobody that, that, that we should take too seriously. Hold on a second. He looks slowly, but he's the one that God has raised up. He's the one that God sent as the Messiah to die for our sins. And not only did he die, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. And Philippians 2 tells us that in the end, every knee will bow before him. Some willingly, if they trust him now. And some regretfully, because they know that they missed who this Jesus is. The stone which the builders have rejected, God has made the cornerstone. Jesus is the often rejected, sin-bearing, death-facing son of man who God raised to be the life-giving, spirit-granting, forever-reigning son of God. Do you trust him? Is your life in his hands? Has he forgiven your sin? Is he your Lord? Are you genuinely with him? Will you be raised up with him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you now as the one who was rejected by the world, but we want to say, and we know that we can because your spirit has filled those of us who say this, but we say, You're our Lord, you're our Savior, we have no hope but you. And Lord, we confess our sin to you, our our lowliness. Our times of rejecting you, if we're honest, we're more like Saul than David. Thank you for the forgiveness that there is in Christ. Lord, assure those of us who know you that we will be raised up in the power of the Spirit to share life with you forever. And Lord, challenge those of us who who don't know you to really deeply consider these things. Ask the big questions. And we pray you would even do a work in them this morning and, and over time here to... Uh, save them and and bring them to know Christ with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to share time in communion now, and if I could ask the uh, the helpers to to pass out the the bread, the the crackers and the juice. Uh, This is for those of us who do genuinely call upon Jesus as Lord and Saviour and have um, symbolised that by being baptised. And so if that's you, you genuinely trust Christ as your Saviour this day you're walking in repentance and faith you've shown that through baptism then um, please I invite you to join in now this remembrance of what Christ has done for us son of man the son of God the lowly raised up for our sake Uh, so I'll give you a moment to reflect Uh, let it pass you by if if that's not you or if you're